Isaiah chapter 52, found on page 740. Isaiah chapter 52, page 740, we are going to read from verse 13 through to the end of chapter 53. This is a prophecy about the Messiah that God promised that he would send to rescue his people. And as we move into the New Testament and beyond, it becomes clear this Messiah is Jesus Christ. So Isaiah 52 and verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness, so will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet We considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearer is silent, so He did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. 
and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Amen. We're going to sing praise once again, again in God's word. Uh, This time we go to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16, that is page 287 in the Church Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 16, we're going to read from verse 1 through to verse 13. And our focus this evening is going to be on verse 7. First Samuel chapter 16, reading from verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord had said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. 
I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then made Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. Well, I would ask that we keep this passage open as we consider especially verse 7. 150,000 dollars is how much Sarah Palin spent in 2008 on sprucing up her wardrobe. Perhaps sounds like a crazy idea. But she was running at the time to be vice president. And her campaign staff knew the best way of impressing voters isn't to have a well thought out policy. It's not to craft a good argument. They knew most people judge others based on what they see. And... Before we pat ourselves on the back too much. Sadly, can't it be true in the church as well? 
Can't we be so superficial sometimes in how we assess someone's value? When it comes to leaders in the church, don't we so easily base our opinion of them on how eloquent or how dynamic they are and ignore the Christ-likeness of their character? When we judge people by what we see, it often leads to disaster. And so thankfully we see in 1 Samuel 16, God does things differently. We're joining the story here at one of the most crucial moments in Israel's history. Israel needs a king. Saul, their first king, had started so promisingly, and yet he has made mistakes. And in fact, chapter 15, he has directly disobeyed God. And so Samuel, God's prophet, has told Saul that the Lord has rejected him as king. And so, chapter 16 is crucial. If Saul's successor is a good man, then perhaps he can put some of these things right. But if the wrong man is chosen, then chances are things are just going to get worse. And we see in this passage, God doesn't leave it up to choice. God makes sure that the right man for the job is chosen. And the key verse that governs the passage is verse 7. We see two things at the end of the verse. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So firstly, we want to see this evening, man looks at the outward appearance. We're in Bethlehem in this story. It's famous today because that's where Jesus was born. But back then, it was a small, insignificant town. And so you can maybe imagine the shock In verse 4, when Samuel shows up, here is God's prophet. He is one of the most important men in the whole country. And suddenly, completely out of the blue, he arrives in this small town. In fact, you can even see the reaction of the elders in verse 4. They trembled. They heard, no doubt, about the way that Samuel has judged the wicked. They've heard, I'm sure, about how he has put wicked men to death. They've probably even heard about chapter 15, how this prophet has gone right up to the king's face and he's lambasted him for breaking God's law. And so... They must have been thinking, mustn't they? What could Samuel possibly want here? 
perhaps some of you can think back to school. And perhaps in your school there was one especially stern teacher. The most feared person in the school. Someone who doesn't take any nonsense. And you know that sometimes, just by the way that those teachers storm into the room, you know someone is in big trouble. I think that is a bit like Samuel. And so, very tentatively, they ask him in verse 4, Do you come in peace? And Samuel replies, verse 5, Yes, I come in peace. I have come to sacrifice to God. must have been such a wave of relief for these men that Samuel isn't coming in order to cause trouble. Samuel, in spite of the fact that he's being honest with these men, he's telling them the truth, he doesn't tell them at this point about verse 1. Samuel isn't just there to sacrifice. He is also there in order to anoint a new king. God has told Samuel that there is a man in this town called Jesse. And one of Jesse's sons is to be the new head of the nation. And God gives Samuel very clear instructions. Hold this sacrifice and invite Jesse and his sons and I will show you the man of my choice and perhaps as we read through the passage there you got a bit of an impression that it's a bit like a talent show each man passes in front of Samuel Samuel gets the chance to eye them up and to decide whether or not they would make a good king. And right at the very start, Samuel thinks that he has found the man. Eliab, in verse 6, tall, rugged, handsome, he's presumably got strong arms and a chiselled jaw. I think if you were to imagine a king in your head... He would look a lot like Eliab. And I wonder, without even thinking about it, did Samuel's hand start to twitch? Did he instinctively reach down for the oil? Was he mentally in his mind already pouring the oil over Eliab's head? Before he has a chance to do that, God speaks. Verse 7. And we have especially that crucial line at the end. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Samuel sees a man whom you could picture marching into battle. God sees a man 
who is just like Saul. Someone who isn't qualified to lead God's people. Someone, by the way, in chapter 17, who we see to be paranoid, judgmental, and arrogant. Eliab is not God's choice. And then verses 8 to 10 of chapter 16, Eliab's brothers pass in front of Samuel. And every time God says no. I think we could perhaps forgive Samuel at this point for wondering to himself, are there actually two people called Jesse in Bethlehem? Perhaps I've gone to the wrong house. And he asks in verse 11, he he asks Jesse, do you have any other sons? And I wonder, at this point, had he begun to lose hope? Certainly, Jesse's answer speaks volumes. There is one more. There's still the youngest. But he is away tending the sheep. So here we have this insignificant family. They live in a small, insignificant town. And even in his own family, David, the youngest, number eight, is not important enough to be invited to the big event. And surely that is an outworking of what we're told in verse 7. Man looks at the outward appearance. David at this point is possibly just a teenager. He has got no right to the family inheritance. He presumably doesn't have the same physical prowess as his brother. And so David is simply not valued. Of course, it's not just David who is on the receiving end of this sort of thinking. Isn't this the same way that people have always judged? And it's true, especially in the experience of David's greatest descendant. The best leader that God's people have ever had. Jesus came preaching the gospel and yet the majority of people turned their backs. They had a good laugh about the obscure little town that Jesus came from. They criticised his lack of academic qualifications. They whispered about the shady details of his conception and his birth. They looked and they couldn't get past the company that he kept. Fishermen, women, tax collectors and prostitutes. Most people who heard Jesus preach 
dismissed him because man looks at the outward appearance. And really, this shouldn't have been a surprise because we read from Isaiah 53 and we're told the Messiah has no beauty or majesty. There is nothing desirable about his appearance. We're told he is to be despised and rejected by men. He is to be so unattractive and so despised that when people see him, they turn away. And I think when we understand that, we can begin to make sense of an awful lot that happens in the church. I know that there are some of you here and you have poured time and effort into different people in the time. You've prayed for them. You've gone to their homes. You've met with them for Bible study. You've invited them along to church. And then they've lost interest and they've drifted away. This verse shows us the reason why so many people hear about Jesus and yet turn their backs. Man looks at the outward appearance. Men and women are spiritually blind. And so whenever they hear about Jesus, unless God intervenes to give them sight, well, they choose to ignore him. And when that happens, it's right and it's good that we feel disappointed. That's a sign that we genuinely care. But we do need to realise, because of man's blindness, this is exactly what we should expect to happen. It's not a reflection on us or our feelings. Jesus is and always has been despised and rejected by men. And more than that, we should definitely expect that people will look at us in exactly the same way. Think about the congregation here. We don't own a grand building. We just meet in this this room that we share with all sorts of other groups. Think about what we do on a Sunday morning and in the evening. We read this really old book. We sing old songs. We pray. Do we really expect the world to be impressed? The world simply does not see the true value of the things we do. 
all the world sees is the outward appearance. And so it rolls its eyes. And it's not just true of us. It's true of the whole Christian church. Most people think that Christians are wasting their lives. The way they try to build up treasures in heaven rather than cashing in here and now. Most people look at Christians and write them off as weak because they value things like forgiveness and mercy. The world dismisses Christians as bigots and as being arrogant and as out of touch. And the thing is, we're to expect that. Because most people dismiss Jesus in the same way. And yet, the crazy thing is this. So often, the church tries to impress the world. It moulds all of its activities, its worship style, everything about it, around this desire to impress. And the thing is, it's never going to work. The gospel is never going to be appealing to the world. And the reason is verse 7. Man looks on the outward appearance. And it's not just churches. It's us as individuals as well. It can be so tempting, can't it, to try and make ourselves a bit more appealing to the world. I think especially it's tempting for Christian young people and if you're not a young person, this is something to pray for and to pray about when you're praying for Christian young people. It's so tempting to talk just like everyone else. It's tempting for Christian girls to dress the same way as all of their friends. It's tempting to go to the same places, to have the same sorts of relationships. It's tempting to try and mask it all with pious talk about being a witness and about reaching the world. And yet, the fact is, the world is never going to be impressed. The vast majority of people will never see the point in following Jesus because of what we see in this passage. Man looks on the outward appearance. Thankfully, we see in this passage that God is different. So secondly, the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. To everyone's surprise, Samuel insists that David 
the youngest son be brought to the sacrifice. Verse 12, David arrives. Just note in this verse, David is an attractive man. It's not that God is somehow opposed to physical looks. Rather, they're simply not important as far as God is concerned. David enters the room, the others look at him, and they see the baby of the family. He's not as important as they are. He's well down the pecking order. He probably smells of sheep as he arrives in the room. But God sees David's heart. He sees a young man who has faith. A man of prayer. A man who spends time in worship. A man who in terms of godliness stands head and shoulders over Saul and Eliab and all of his brothers. And so David is God's choice to be king. And some of you in the midweeks here have been reading through First and Second Samuel, and you'll have seen, I'm sure, the wisdom of God's choice, because David turns out to be a very good king. He follows God, he obeys God, and Israel is blessed under David's reign. I think we can say with confidence, David made a far better king than Eliab would have ever done. And yet, we know David wasn't perfect. He sinned in some really terrible ways. And so, we're supposed to look at David, and we're supposed to realise, ultimately, he isn't the one. What God's people need is a perfect king. They need Jesus. He obeyed even in areas where David fell. He lived a life that was without blemish. He he ruled perfectly over God's people. Perhaps you can think of Christ's baptism and God's own witness. About Jesus. This is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. And so as we read this passage. We should be thankful that God himself has provided this perfect king. We should be thankful for how we get to serve a leader who has a pure heart and who always does what's right. This chapter should make us more grateful for Jesus. And if you're not a believer, as you read this passage, 
And as you think about Jesus, you should realise what a privilege it is to follow this king. He's someone who secures God's rich blessing for all of his subjects. He's someone who defends his people and who rules justly. This passage is supposed to attract us to Jesus Christ. think if we're honest if we were to choose a king it probably in fact it certainly wouldn't have been David and without a doubt if we were choosing a saviour we would not ever pick someone who was as outwardly unimpressive as Jesus Christ. And yet God sees past what is obvious. And he <coughs> sees all the way to the heart. Man looks in the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. Well. How does it make you feel knowing that God looks at the heart? Perhaps it's a frightening thought. Maybe you know that under the surface things are not the way that they should be. Maybe you're bearing grudges in your heart. Maybe there's jealousy or pride. This verse reminds us God sees those stains which we are so good at hiding from others. Those sins of the heart and we think to ourselves, well sure they don't hurt anyone else. We're reminded here God sees them. This verse should remind us that if we are ever going to be acceptable to God, we need him to give us a new heart. Because looking good or doing good on the outside is never going to be enough. Or maybe for some of you, you read this verse and it's an encouragement. Perhaps you are undervalued by others. Maybe you don't have the career or the influence or the popularity that others do. In fact, it's sad to say, but maybe even in the church, the ways that you serve aren't as immediately obvious as the ways that others serve. And we're reminded here, God doesn't evaluate us by the standards of the world. God values the heart above everything else. And God is able to see whenever our hearts are right. Even if others 
don't have the discernment to see that for themselves. Or maybe reading this verse is a challenge. Perhaps you realise as you sit here, you have not been making the effort whenever it comes to your heart. Perhaps you've been focused on all of the wrong things. You've been putting so much work into your fitness on the outside. Or your job. Or the way that you look to others. And you've been neglecting the heart. You've been allowing wrong attitudes and wrong thoughts to spring up. You've thought, just like I said a few minutes ago, if nobody else gets hurt, well then it's not a problem. I wonder, is verse 7 challenging you to put more effort into cultivating a heart that is just like David's? Is it challenging you to make love and joy and peace and patience and the other fruit of the Spirit your priority in life? Isn't it foolish that we so often neglect the one aspect of our beings that God values above everything else? This passage teaches us about mankind and it teaches us about God. If it was left up to man, well, someone like David would never have been king. But thankfully, we see in the passage God intervened, and yet, tragically, men and women continue to turn their noses up at Jesus <coughs> because man looks at the outward appearance and I would urge you if you haven't yet made a commitment to Christ don't make that same mistake but as well as Showing us that man looks at the outward appearance. The passage teaches us that God is different. He sees further and deeper than man sees. And so I want to leave you with the question. When God looks into your heart, what does he see? Does he see the stains and the smears of hidden sin? Or does he see a heart that you have worked hard at to tend by his spirit? If we are truly godly, then we will work towards the things that God counts as important. Man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. Amen.
Let us stand and come before God in prayer.